All right, well, again, we're glad you're with us this morning, and if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them, and let's turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14. Titus, chapter 2, 11 through 14. Well, we have finally come to that point where we are now going to begin a look at biblical eschatology, the study of the last days. And we've entitled this series, The End is Only the Beginning. And the reason we have done so is due to the fact that many in America, when studying this incredible portion of Scripture, this incredible theological category, often get lost in the details of the uh, future fulfillments of Revelation, and yet stop when they come to Revelation 19 and don't realize that the story continues after that in chapters 20, 21, and 22. We need to adopt the same mindset concerning the return of Jesus Christ that the early church had, that the apostles had. And we need to not so be concerned about the identity of the Antichrist, but fix our eyes on the return of Jesus Christ. You and I as Americans have been surrounded in a culture of conspiracy theory. And often when prophecy is talked about, it is accompanied with uh, hypersensationalism. And yet through that all, the, the great meaning is lost of the return of Jesus Christ. And that is that Jesus Christ will set everything in order once again by eventually creating a new heaven and a new earth where all the injustices that we see happening and occurring in our society today will all be rectified before him. You and I need to have the same approach to our study of the end times. And we're going to talk about the seven-year period outlined in Revelations chapter 6 through 19. We're going to talk about this individual that's going to rise to power that the Bible calls the Antichrist. We're going to talk about the means in which he will uh, persuade people to follow him and the delusion that God will give them over to to allow them to follow him. We're going to be looking at the signs of the times, the events that we can look to and also uh, gauge by how uh, they rapidly are coming into concession to know how close we are getting to the end. Now, we certainly know that no one knows the day or the hour. However, though, I can say with certainty, as I've said many times before, we are 2,000 years closer. And then we're going to discuss the nation of Israel and the role that that nation plays, for it shall be the epicenter of the return of Christ and the city of Jerusalem, the new temple that the Jewish people will rebuild. We're going to be looking at all of this over the next several weeks. And because once again our nation is faced with a crisis, many are asking questions concerning the COVID virus and the role that it plays. And in 2008, we talked about it when the financial collapse occurred. In 2001, we talked about it when, of course, 9-11 happened. And here we are in 2020, and we are asking questions again. And we hope to address those questions and answer them biblically for you 
And in so doing, once again, reinstilling in all of our minds the proper attitude towards the return of Jesus Christ. And as doing that, hopefully reap the benefits of a robust, rich theology of the second coming of Jesus Christ within our personal and practical lives. So this morning, I'd like to begin our journey, and this is going to take us through various passages of Scripture. So I would encourage you to have maybe a notebook with you and writing down the passages as we go through them. We're going to look at several this morning quickly. And as we do, we are going to be looking at portions of the New Testament kept in their context that address the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christians from the very beginning of of the church believed that Jesus Christ was going to return again physically to this earth. We hold to that doctrine also. We believe that he is going to physically return to the earth. But what's going to happen afterwards? What is he going to do next? And while we wait for his coming, how should we allow the understanding of his return practically affect us within our lives? You see, the return of Jesus Christ is the consummation of all things back onto himself. And this allows for the completion of the salvation in which Jesus Christ has provided for us on the cross. And this is why I direct your attention this morning to Titus chapter 2, which I believe speak of the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ in its proper context, showing us that it is the fulfillment, it is the end all of the incredible salvation in which we obtained through our resurrected Lord and Savior. You see, for you and I, our ultimate destiny is not simply to reside in heaven with God for all eternity. For Revelation 21 and 22 clearly tells us that a new heaven and a new earth will be given to us to enjoy for all eternity. Well, what's up with that? What is that going to be like? We're going to look at that together. When Jesus returns, what's going to take place? Well, the Bible tells us a thousand-year reign, a millennial reign of Christ over this earth. What's that going to be like, and what are we going to be like, and what role are we going to play in it all? Those are all things we're going to get to as we look at it, this subject together. And again, this is why I've called it, the end is only the beginning. When we look at the last days, we see that the return of Jesus Christ is some kind of finality, when in actuality it's just another step in the process to the ultimate finality, which is the new heaven and the new earth. And I believe this is the mindset that the apostles had and wanted to communicate to the early church. Notice with me as we read our verses here in Titus, the manner in which Paul brings this to Titus' attention, who in and of himself, Titus that is, was leading a church himself. And Paul is now placing that number one, that the study of the end times, the return of Jesus Christ, is a necessary component for any healthy church. Now today, many have avoided this subject completely. They don't even want to touch it due to the, you know, the number of conspiracy theories that are wrapped around a biblical text improperly, the number of individuals who have supersensualized the scriptures and the fulfillments thereof. And let's be honest, let's talk about the number of Christians who 
have given us dates and times, and each and every one of those dates and times have been incorrect. So many have just written off the subject. As some would put it, it's just not an essential subject for us as Christians. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul the Apostle made it abundantly clear as he taught the church in Thessalonica, one of the very first churches that he established in his missionary journeys into the Gentile regions. He made eschatology, the study of the last days, a major component, an essential component to his teaching of new believers. History tells us that he was only there in Thessalonica for about six weeks, and yet he gave them a robust understanding of the last days. So I believe just as it is necessary for them in the beginning of the church, how much more necessary is it for us today, which I believe we're coming to the end of the church age here, on the, here in the world. But let us read together in Titus, as Paul is writing one of the last books in which he wrote. He emphasizes the blessed return of our Lord and Savior, but notice the context in which he put it and placed it. Notice with me in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He's speaking of Christ here. That God sent his only begotten son because of his love for the world. That whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The grace of God displayed for us in the sending of his son to us for the purpose of our salvation. Notice what he says here. Bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting, notice here, for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This verse right here is one of the clearest declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ. It shows and demonstrates that not only was Jesus human, but he also was God. He was 100% man and 100% God. This is a very clear text to use in defense of the deity of Jesus Christ, showing that he was more than just a mere man, a teacher, a prophet. He was God and is God today. And Paul said, that as we now live, let us guide ourselves, let us be governed by the reality as we wait for the blessed appearing, the return of our great uh, and uh, glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purity for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice, that Paul the Apostle states that in Christ's first coming, anyone who would turn to him and repent and receive him as Savior, putting their faith and trust in him, would be saved. They would be given new life. They would obtain the salvation that God has provided for them. And as a result, a manifestation of that salvation would be the fact that we would separate ourselves from the conduct of this world that we would live for the purpose and the glory of god and as we do so 
we do so with the hope and the anticipation of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the mindset that the early Christian had concerning the return of the Lord. It was to further separate them from this world. In the sense of living not as a citizen of this world, but living as a citizen of the kingdom of God, of heaven. Knowing that our Lord and Savior had bought us and purchased us with a price vastly superior to silver and gold, but through His blood. And that we were no longer our own. And it was no longer us who lived, but Christ who lived through us. And as we walk each and every day, anticipating His return, and I believe the New Testament is replete with examples of the apostles clearly believing that Christ could return in their time. So it is not unusual, strange, or inappropriate for us to walk in either, uh, in, with either a greater uh, anticipation of His return today. You see, some, I believe, believe in the return of Jesus Christ, but they don't necessarily acknowledge or live as if it could happen in their lifetime. They believe that it's still some far-off event that's still yet years and years and decades and decades and centuries and centuries away. Well, that may be possible, but I believe on the signs that we see are telling us that we're much closer than that. But let us understand that through our study of the end times, we are not going to be nearly as concerned about the identity of the Antichrist as we will be our allegiance to Jesus Christ and how we allow the understanding of the return of Jesus Christ to practically penetrate our lives and play out throughout our lives today. Now, many ask the question, when did the last days actually begin? And that's a good question. Well, interestingly enough, the Bible tells us when the last days actually began. And it begins in Acts chapter 2. And you're familiar with the passage. We've looked at it many times here at church. It is when the Holy Spirit has now come upon the disciples And being empowered by them, they then begin to praise God in other languages as Peter then ventures out on top of the roof and others with him. And people passing by hear the praises of God in their own language and then look and discover that these are mere fishermen who shouldn't be able to speak in the languages that they are currently speaking in. Assuming that they, that is the disciples, were intoxicated... Peter then addresses the fact that, no, what is occurring is what was prophesied in the book of Joel. And as he begins to bring forth his biblical defense of the event that has just taken place, that is Pentecost, he begins with these words in quoting Joel. And notice with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. There was a biblical uh, reason or justification for the uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit that has just taken place. A biblical reason for it. Notice what Joel says in verse 17 as Peter continues to quote the passage. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servant and female servant in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass to those that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But notice what he says in verse 17. He says very clearly that in the last days, the last days began at Pentecost, and we are now 2,000 years closer to the fulfillment of those days. Paul calls it the time of the Gentiles, the church age, the age of grace. As we get closer and closer to that day. But the last days actually started at the time of Pentecost. You see, the disciples saw that each and every day given to them on the earth was another day of grace. It was another day that God was holding back his judgment, as Peter clearly articulates for us in 2 Peter chapter 3, to allow all to come to him, that all may be saved. Notice that even Paul here in Titus says that Jesus Christ came for all people, that salvation may come to all people. See, God desires everyone to be saved and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he has provided the means by which salvation can be obtained for you and I. That's the grace of God. Notice that Paul says here, and for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in the fullness of Jesus Christ. But a clock began to tick. The moment the Holy Spirit came upon and birthed the church there in the book of Acts. And from that point on, we have been waiting day by day, and the long suffering of God has been growing day by day to allow each and every person come who will come, that no one may be lost. It's in your court. God has given you the grace, He's given you the Uh, uh, a means now you just need to place your faith and trust in him he has shown you i'm sure in numerous ways that he is exactly who he says he is and god has now reached out to you and is calling you to come home but now the apostles knew that they were in the last days And throughout the writing of the New Testament, I've selected a few uh, passages for your consideration this morning to show you and to demonstrate for you how this theology impacted their own personal lives. And I think it begins very clearly with our beloved uh, Apostle John, who indicated in his first epistle that the realization and the knowledge and the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back should have a purifying effect upon the church. 
Meaning, you and I as individuals, in the light of the fact that we know that God is going to return, we should look to live for the full-on glory of God. Now, that is perfectly in, uh, in sync with what Paul had just told us in Titus, isn't it? That we should uh, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That's exactly what Paul had asked us to do in the light of Christ's return. But John wrote it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I love the way John begins this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will yet, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, Peter says it this way, let us be holy for he is holy. First and foremost, a robust understanding of the return of Jesus Christ, a practical belief in his imminent return, should motivate us and move us to live godly lives. It should cause us to question and to walk circumspectly, as Paul wrote, and it should ask us to evaluate our our hearts and minds before him knowing that his return could be at any moment, at any time. And Paul and Peter and John all say the same thing. Let this hope purify you. And I believe that one of the reasons that we still struggle with carnality in the church in America today is because we don't have a robust theological understanding of the return of Jesus Christ. I believe the temptations of this world become much more alluring to individual Christians when we simply believe, well, dad's not around and he's not looking, so who cares what I do here and now at this time? But the mindset of the early apostles, the mindset of the early Christians was a mindset of the imminent return of Christ, that he could return at any moment. And as a result, they lived accordingly. They wanted to be found faithful by their Lord and worthy, as Paul writes often in his epistles, of the life in which God has provided for them. And so, John encourages us to live as Christ lived, in the light of his return. Now, Paul also tells us that as we get closer to the end, the times will become perilous. It will become more and more chaotic, more and more difficult. It's going to get worse before it gets better, I guess, summing it up with those words. But notice what he said in in his last letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he wrote, he says, But understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty. Or if you have the King James, New King James, it's perilous times for people will be lovers of self lovers of money they'll be proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to their parents 
ungrateful, unholy, and heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having, unfortunately, I should say, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And he says, avoid such people. It's going to get difficult. You see, the farther and farther we move away from God, and the, the longer we try to suppress the knowledge of God within us in unrighteousness, the more self rises to the surface. And the more self that rises to the surface, that self is in a depraved state. That self is going to manifest actions of depravity amongst mankind. And as a result, we are going to see the chaos that we are seeing. We're going to see people acting as they are acting. Because again, as we continue to move away from God, push Him out of our society, the more we try to suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, the more self comes to the surface. And that self isn't clothed in righteousness. That self isn't uh, governed by selflessness. That self is governed by sin. And as a result, manifesting its nature through sinful acts. Self-seeking acts, if you will. Peter told us that in the wake of this rise of self, there will also be scoffers in the last days. Claiming that, yes, we've heard you Christians for years and years and years talking about the end of the world, talking about the return of Jesus Christ, and nothing's ever happened. Everything is exactly the same as it always was. And Peter addresses that very clearly. You know, I heard a story one time of two Christians standing on the side of the road. They both had signs that the end is near and they were holding it up as cars passed. And as they, the cars were passing, the cars would jeer them and say, you ridiculous Christians, you've been saying that for years. And then you would hear squeals of the tires and then a big splash. And then one Christian said to the other who were holding the signs, maybe we should just simply put it, slow down for the bridges out ahead. We have the answers, folks. But we need to act and communicate in a proper fashion to get the world's attention. Not through conspiracy theories, not directing their attention to YouTube and every self-proclaimed prophetic expert that is on YouTube but showing them biblically a text that was written 2,000 years ago, fulfilling itself in the time in which we live. Now, when Revelation was written, and John was writing Revelation due to the vision in which he was given, I believe that there were short-term fulfillments of the predictions that he saw. And many of those were through the Roman Empire and Caesar Nero. But I believe that these were just short-term fulfillments of a long-term reality that was still yet to come. And like Caesar Nero dictating a tyranny over the entire world in his time, in John's time, 
asking for people's allegiance to worship him as God. Through the power and the might of the Roman Empire, I believe that there will be also a future fulfillment where the Antichrist will stand up and do the exact same thing on a global scale. And we'll look at that as we come to the book of Revelation. But people are going to scoff, and maybe you've experienced that already in your life. But notice what Peter says. He says it very eloquently and very clearly. He says in 2 Peter 1 through 10, again, I hope you have that notebook next to you because I'm giving a lot of passages to consider for the future. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens exist long ago and the earth was formed out of the water through Uh, the water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished by the same word the heavens and the earth will now exist that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and one, a thousand years as is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some can count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and, when the heavens, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. One aspect of the return of Jesus Christ that I need to emphasize throughout this entire series is that the early church and the apostles fully believed that all things were going to be set right at Christ's return. You see, they were waiting consistently and constantly for Jesus to take his throne in Jerusalem and to reign over Israel. Even the day he ascended into heaven, they were still asking about the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 1. You can read that on your own. But they didn't realize that when Jesus returns, his kingdom will not only govern the nation of Israel, but the whole world. And it's going to be vastly superior to their limited understanding of the kingdom there in Israel. But in that reign of Christ, things will be set right. All the injustices, all the wrongdoing, all those things that were done in secret will be exposed. All those things that individuals feel that they've gotten away with over the years will be brought out and they will be held accountable. They saw it as the ultimate reconciliation. They saw this as a portion or a a large principle of their salvation. This way, they could allow God to do what God wanted to do, and that is carry out vengeance. 
For God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He didn't want people to take the vengeance into their own hands. He was going to unleash that. And the early church believed that. And so should we. And lastly, Paul tells us, though, that one of the things we can anticipate are many Christians walking away from the faith, being drawn away by doctrines of demons, being allured back into this world, and finding themselves in a state of apostasy. Now, the theological question begs itself, were they ever saved to begin with? Are we going to see a thinning of the herd as some early Christians have written? The separation of the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the terror. But notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though the insincerity of liars, I'm sorry, through the insincerity of liars whose uh, consciences are seared. And then he goes on and he states some of the aspects that they can watch for who forbid marriage requiring abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer, dealing with a specific issue that false teachers were bringing to the surface at the time he wrote this letter to Timothy. But notice that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. The Bible tells us very clearly that in the last days, people will heap up for themselves teachers telling them what they want to hear, as the old King James, new King James stated, having their ears tickled, that they may be uh, entertained instead of taught and convicted and challenged by the Word of God. This is all happening within our society and within our culture today. And it certainly has contributed to the unhealthy state of the body of Christ here in America. The return of Jesus Christ is something that all Christians look forward to, and it is a doctrine that we hold to. It is outlined for us in Revelation chapter 19. You can look at it for yourself. In verses 11 through 16, we are given the incredible picture of Jesus returning on a white horse. It means that he comes for judgment, for battle. He is going to confront the evil of this world in his return. Now we parallel that with his first coming when he came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, representing that he came in peace and was looking for individuals to uh, engage with him and to peacefully receive him, which of course they didn't, they rejected him. The second coming comes on a white horse, which is completely depictive of an individual coming back in judgment, holding individuals accountable, reconciling all injustices. And it's articulated for us in a very eloquent way as John paints us this elaborate picture of this one on this white horse with eyes of fire, robe dipped in blood. On his thigh it says the word of God. But then comes the end. 
The Bible tells us that after a thousand-year reign of Christ physically here on this earth, the millennial kingdom, after that point, the Bible says that after Satan being incarcerated for those thousand years, will be released one more time. And anyone who chooses to follow him may do so. And after that, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, there are various opinions and interpretations concerning the book of Revelation. Postmillennialism, amillennialism. We hold to a position of eschatology here at Calvary Chapel that is called pre-tribulation, premillennialism. We believe that the rapture of the church is going to occur prior to the return of Jesus Christ and before the seven-year tribulation period. And then after his return, he will reign for a thousand years. So we are pre the millennial kingdom, the millennial state. And that is the view that we will be looking at as we move forward. But notice and listen to these words as I close this morning. This is the ultimate end of it all. The fulfillment of the salvation in which Christ has provided for us. Notice and listen to these words, if you will. They're found in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. John writes and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I give you verse 4 as a comfort this morning in light of all that we are experiencing in our nation today. He says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what we look forward to as a Christian. This was only meant to whet your appetite this morning. As we get into our series, the end is only the beginning. And when we look at the world and we watch the news... As desperately as people want peace within our society, as some chant, no justice, no peace, peace will only occur when man's heart has been dealt with by God. When the heart of an individual that is of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, when the depravity of man is once and foremost dealt with inwardly, can they then have peace outwardly? You know, Jesus even talked about this. He says, I leave you a peace, not that the world leaves. A peace that is governed often by obedience and sub subjection. But an inner peace. A peace that surpasses the understanding of the, even the human mind. This is the peace that God leaves with us. What our nation needs is a revival. We need to return to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But revival begins in his house. It begins with you and I this morning. 
It begins by us once again giving our hearts and lives over to Christ. Reading His Word, spending time with Him daily in prayer. Fellowshipping with one another to encourage one another onto good works. The church is meant to be a glimpse of heaven amongst the darkness, the darkness of this world. You and I are meant to be ambassadors showing the world a light that they can draw to and hear the gospel and have their life changed because of it. Notice what we read this morning, that God is waiting to judge so that all come to repentance, that all may repent. It's his long suffering that's governing him right now. If we see the injustice that we see in our world, how much greater is the injustice that God sees each and every day? Let us understand that we are on borrowed time and that time has been borrowed by God to us. But when judgment falls, and it will fall, the judgment will be precise. It will be decisive. And it will remedy the things of this world. And it's going to be one of the most horrific periods of time that this world has ever seen. But it's because of our evil. It's because of our sin. It's because of the fact that we have told God we don't want you anymore. And is it possible that God is giving our nation over to what we want? Because if it isn't for him changing the hearts of man, it will be self that elevates itself and the depravity of the heart manifesting itself within our society. Is that not what we see today? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most glorious thing that ever has been offered to man. The greatest act of grace was when the Father sent His only begotten Son into this world. And He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The end times are not about the Antichrist. It's all about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we proceed forward in our new series together here on Sunday mornings.